So we're going to talk today about Abraham. We saw the introduction to him last week at the end of chapter 11. So the story of Abraham is going to go on for several chapters now, and we'll take our time through it and make sure that we hit all the major highlights. Today, in particular, as we start Abraham's story, we're going to find promise and testing. These are the two major things that are going to come out of Genesis chapter 12. So those are the two things I want you to be looking for. Now, it's really interesting because this story is really, really old, and it was written a long time ago, and it happened even much further back than when it was written. And I think sometimes as we look at these old stories, especially maybe even from the Old Testament because they're so very old, that we tend to think they're nice and cute and relatively compelling or even insightful perhaps. But I think sometimes we kind of put them on our proverbial bookshelf next to like Aesop's fables and like Poor Richard's Almanac and things like that. Like they're just clever sayings, clever stories, and you can learn some principles by them. If you grew up in an evangelical church, perhaps that was how they were taught to you. Now, really for the first time now, we're getting into the, to the patriarchs, these, these old people which are our at least spiritual ancestors. So, with the beginning of Abraham's story here, we're really going to kind of dig into their lives. And perhaps if you grew up in an evangelical church, the way that you learned about these guys is that you were supposed to not do the bad things that they did, and you were supposed to do the good things that they did. And I think we're going to see some of that even today. But that's not primarily the thing that we are to take away from these stories. In fact, these stories really make up one much bigger story which frankly is continuing to this day. I think really without any great hesitation, we could say that the whole Bible is one big story. It's God's story. He made the world to glorify Him and to enjoy Him. And at the beginning, everything was very good. We saw that back in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. But relatively quickly, it didn't stay that way for Adam and Eve fell into rebellion and sin, and fell under God's curse, which was justifiable because they broke His law. But God promised at the very beginning that He would bring them rescue. In fact, He promised that a rescuer would come and make all things new. And as we've been discussing so far, all the way from chapter 3 of Genesis, all the way through last week in Genesis chapter 11, There are some highlights along the way where some righteous people shine, but those are by far the exception. In fact, if we were to take time to just kind of give an overview of the entire Old Testament, that's basically what we would find. From time to time, there are highlights of moral, righteous, upright people, but by and large, people are full of darkness, they hate God, and they're running from Him. In fact, as we came to the end of chapter 11 last week, when Abraham, whose name at that point was Abram, was introduced, at that point, Abram was not a worshiper of the one true God. He was living in a pagan land and worshiping pagan gods. But the beautiful story that we have so far discerned throughout Genesis is that God will keep His promises. And perhaps to make it very simple, He will keep His singular promise to bring rescue through a rescuer. 
Now, by and large, as God peered down at the drama of human behavior on the earth, it was not very good. And you might think at some point he would say, that's enough. But he didn't. Because he continued to bring about his promises to maintain human life. And all along the way, there seems to be times where he sets his affections, he chooses people out of the rebellion and brings them back to himself so that they might worship him. And then through them, he will bring his promises. And that will be nowhere more clear than in Abraham's family tree. Of course, if you know the story of the Old Testament, Abraham is the father of the Jewish people, the Israelites, the Hebrew people. And this is where it all really begins. If you were to take time to read later on in the story of Israel's history, God makes it very clear to Israel in places like Deuteronomy chapter 7 that He did not set His affections upon them because they were mighty. He didn't set His affections upon them because they completed Him. He set his affections on them perhaps because they were not mighty and because they were so different from him. But by setting his affections upon them, it shows his sovereignty and his grace. And this magnifies him. It makes him look great. And as people understand this, their hearts are drawn to him in genuine worship. You see, this is why God did not make automatons. Robots who merely respond to stimuli. No, God made volitional worshipers who He knew would fall into rebellion. And in God allowing this, He allowed it to get to the point where, by and large, everyone had rebelled against Him. But now He shows up on the scene again, sovereignly weaving together the story of bringing about redemption through a rescuer. And now it's going to come through this pagan we call Abram. So we're going to look today at promise and testing, the beginning of the story of Abraham. Let's read together all of chapter 12. This is God's Word. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord. And called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, because they will, but they will let you live. 
Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. When the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is God's word. So the first thing that I want us to see here today in verses 1 through 9 is just this simple idea of promise. God makes a promise. Now, this promise is not coming out of a vacuum. This promise is very integrally tied back to the promise that God had made Adam and Eve after their sinful fall. He promised them that redemption was not only possible, it was definitely going to come. When things seemed to fall apart in chapter 4, after Cain killed Abel, God gave another seed. When all the world seemed to be horribly sinful in Genesis chapter 6, God preserved life through the ark. And on and on we go. But it's all kind of been heading now to this point. So now in chapters 12 through 50, we will find Abraham's family tree. Everything prior to this is sort of way, way big picture. But now we, we really narrow it down to one family line. So God makes a promise to Abram. You know, it's interesting. God calls Abram out of what he knew. And I think it's incredibly relevant for us. If you are a Christian, that's what he did for you. Now, if you were a little kid, you maybe didn't really recognize that. You know, you had Christian parents, Christian aunts and uncles. You went to a Christian church, Christian school. You had Christian clothes and Christian music and Christian cars. I don't know. Everything was Christian for you. And you didn't necessarily feel that. But even now, kind of retrospectively, you can look back and see perhaps what God rescued you from. This is particularly true for those of you who have been converted to Christianity as adults. Especially maybe for some of those of you who did grow up in somewhat of a moral home, where you had these parameters around you that kind of created for you this false sense of righteousness. But you weren't a follower of Jesus. You were trusting in your own goodness. And finally, when you came to grips with the fact that you had no goodness inside of you and that you had to trust Jesus to credit His righteousness to you only by faith, you really remember what it was like to come out of that old life, trusting in yourself, seeking after a multitude of idols to bring you happiness, and finally coming to grips with the fact that only Jesus could really satisfy Abram was like this. He's an older man, of course, by this point. And God says to him, you're going to come out now of what you know. We know from the ensuing chapters, particularly chapters 13 and 14, that Abram was a pretty wealthy guy. He had hundreds of people he was responsible for. He had all kinds of wealth. But for some reason, he goes. Now, it's interesting that Moses, when he wrote this, didn't get into the psychology of, of how Abram responded. Like, did it, did it take a day? 
Did it take a month? Did God show up in a vision, in a dream? Was there some sort of random prophet that came around? How long did it take? And what went through Abram's head? It probably wouldn't do us a lot of good to speculate, but something happened to make Abram be compelled to leave what he knew to go follow God. Now, perhaps the compelling nature of the argument was what Abram was going to get. Now, remember, we saw back at the end of chapter 11 that Sarai was barren, verse 30, and she had no child. That was a very big deal back in that day, just like it is in our day. Back in that day, you continued to do your posterity. You continued your family tree, of course, through, through children and particularly sons because they could keep the family name going. And you wanted to hand down all your wealth to those children. But it's interesting here at the beginning of chapter 12 that what the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, says to Abram is that I'm going to make of you a great nation. Now, again, there's no psychological analysis here, but, but Abram had to have thought about that. Because he thinks to himself, I've got all this stuff, I've got all these people that I'm responsible for, but I don't have any kids. And what God is saying to him here is, I'm going to give you kids, and I'm going to give you a lot of them in one way or another. Not only that, I'm going to give you a land so that your family can spread out, because it's not just going to be some little paltry family, it's going to grow into a nation. And then through your posterity in that land, I'm going to bless the whole world. Now, it doesn't seem that even though Abram follows God here, and even though he sacrifices to him and builds these altars, even though he calls upon God's name in verse 8 of chapter 12, it doesn't seem that Abram is truly, genuinely, if we can use a term that we typically use now in Christianity, we don't think yet that he's converted. There hasn't been this heart transformation where he recognizes that he has no righteousness and needs it to come from outside of him, because he doesn't have it inside of him. We know that especially because in Genesis chapter 15, that seems to be his conversion experience. The Scriptures say that that's when righteousness is accounted to him or credited to him or or given to him. So all this stuff we see going on here in Genesis chapter 12, we might call sort of pre-conversion intrigue. Everything that God had said to him seemed intriguing enough to go after it. And so he did. Before we go on, I want to draw attention to those three things I already mentioned that God said he would give Abram. Now, again, we already said last week from Genesis chapter 11, verse 30, that that that's really foreshadowing. It's interesting that Sarai's barrenness is mentioned. That is typical among the patriarchs, these early fathers of our faith. And the point of that is, If God's going to do anything through them, if the promise of the rescuer is going to come through them, He's going to have to sovereignly intervene. And this just goes to show that rescue would not come by chance. It would not come by human confederation. It would not come by great human planning. It would have to come through divine sovereignty. 
Not only this, He's going to give them a special place to live. And really, the rest of the Old Testament is is the people getting the land, losing the land, returning to the land, being taken out of the land again, coming back again. When they follow God, He blesses them with the land. When they dishonor Him, He takes them out of it. He uses the land very often to say, I will bless you if you'll just follow me. But if you won't, if you'll go your own way, if you'll love other gods, I'll take you out. But of course, the promise in all this is that the families of the earth will be blessed through this people in this land. If you know much about Abram's story, we've already read a bit today, so you already see some of his moral flaws here in Genesis chapter 12. We're going to continue on in the story as we go through Genesis, and then really the rest of the Old Testament is is a basic depiction of human unfaithfulness. And it's interesting here in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that God does not say, if you'll do everything that I say, rescue will come. He doesn't say, Abram, I've been examining the people of the earth. You seem like the best follower. You seem like the most capable one and I'm going to set my affections on you now, and if you'll just do everything that I say and continue on in a faithful manner, then the rescue will happen. Because, you see, that's how God's going to bless the whole earth. If you understand anything about Israel's history, the history of the Jewish people, by and large, they have not been a blessing to most of the earth. In fact, most of the earth has despised the people of Israel at one time or another. And not just thousands or even hundreds of years ago, like 70 years ago. And yet, God says, through this nation, this insignificant, historically unfaithful nation, I'm going to bless the whole world. Well, by what means would He do that? Well, of course, we have the entirety of our canon, the entirety of the Bible, and we know that one day a Jew would be born in humble insignificance, and that Jewish man named Jesus, the son of Joseph, the son of Mary, would grow into a man and prove himself to be the son of God, and he would die for the sins of the world and be raised in power, laying his life down as a sacrifice to cover the sins of all who would trust in him, and raising to newness of life that he might give power and eternal hope for all who would trust him. You see, God promised to bring a rescuer way back as soon as the first sin was committed. And now he calls another sinner to himself and promises that through this sinner he will bring the rescuer because out of Abram's family, the Jews, would come the great rescuer. But it would not be because those people, the Jews, would be faithful. Again, by and large, they just weren't. They were exactly the opposite, frankly. And Abram is much like his offspring. Abram waffles between faithfulness and unfaithfulness. And really what we see here, if if this man Abram is not yet a true follower of God and is merely intrigued by the promises that Yahweh gives to him, 
we can especially understand why Abram was not yet following in perfect faithfulness. But I want you to tuck that thought away from verses 1 through 3, because we're going to see it again throughout the rest of our study of the book of Genesis, that God keeps His promises, and specifically, His covenant with His people to bring grace to sinners, rescue for the fallen, is not based primarily upon their faithfulness. In fact, much the opposite. It's because He's just gracious, and He wants the grace to shine here on the earth. And perhaps that helps us to understand what we've already seen in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Why did God make this world anyway? And if he decided to make it, why didn't he just make it where the people that he made, his image bearers, would by and large do the things he wanted them to do? Why didn't he just compel them to do the things he wanted them to do? Well, seemingly to God, if there is a world that understood his power, his beauty, his wisdom, his sovereign providential control, and yet didn't understand or feel the need for grace, that somehow His glory would not be on full display, and therefore He would not be glorified to the extent He wished to be glorified, and these people, these fallen people, could never appreciate Him the way that He wanted to be appreciated, and exalted Him, enjoy Him the way that they alone as fallen and then rescued sinners could. You see, God made the world in such a way that His grace would be absolutely essential for anyone to have any hope. And He wanted it to be that way. And now He shows up in verses 1 through 3, and He begins to unfold His plan in greater detail. And He's saying here, I'm going to bring the promise And it's not going to be based upon you keeping your promises to me. I'm going to shower my grace upon you. And it's sovereign and it's amazing. When Joshua leads the people of Israel into the promised land after they've come out of the captivity in Egypt that we read about in the book of Exodus, he says to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Joshua is giving his last little sermon before they kind of break up and do their own thing in this conquered land they've entered into. Why does he go back through the history of Israel? Well, really the same reason that Moses wrote this history. When Moses wrote the book of Genesis, he was writing it for the people of Israel that he was leading out of Egypt. Why did they need to know Abraham's story? They needed to know where they came from, for sure, But more importantly, they needed to understand that the God who had rescued their father Abram out of paganism, out of idol worship, was the same God that was rescuing them out of Egypt. The same God that made a promise to Abram that he would give him a land is the same God that was taking them into their promised land. The same God that said, I will bless the whole world through your nation is the same God that would take this people of Israel into their land. And now as Joshua speaks to an entirely different generation, he's basically saying the same thing, calling their attention back to who their God was. So Abram's life really becomes a paradigm for his offspring, for the entire nation that would grow out of him, and for us as well. 
So Paul says in Romans chapter 3 that no one seeks for God, just like Abram didn't, just like Joshua said Abram didn't. Jesus says in John chapter 6 that no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says that we have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world to the praise of the glorious grace of our Father. Why has He done things this way? Why has He taken those that are sinful and rebellious and would never seek after Him and bring them back to Himself? Why? Because He wants His grace to shine. And if you're His child today, I want you to rest in that. I want you to exult in that. If you are not yet, if you are considering the claims of Christianity, I want you to see just how gracious this God is. That throughout human history, His grace has been pursuing. That this is one big, gigantic story of love. And He loves you. And He wants you to turn to Him from your rebellion, from your self-confidence, and to trust His rescue plan, and specifically the rescuer who gave His life for you, Jesus, the Son of God. So we see in this text God's promise. He promised Abram that if he would just do what God said, that good would come. But there's also testing in this text. It's really interesting So God calls Abram and tells him he's going to give him promises. He's going to give him all these blessings. But then right away, he tests him. Now, you have to read between the lines a little bit. In verse 10, we find that that there's a famine in the land. So Abram has gone from Shechem, then down to this area called Bethel. And now he keeps going south. The Negev is the southern region below Canaan. He's traveling down that way, and there's a famine in the land. Well, who did that? The God who separated the land from the waters, the God who waters the earth whenever He wants and withholds the waters when He wants, as we learn in the book of Job, the one who knows where all the storehouses of snow are, the one who feeds the ostriches and all the other animals that he has made, that God controls everything. That's why Paul can say in Acts chapter 17 that in him, in God, we move and live and have our being. You see, he didn't just create everything and then let it spin. God created everything and has been superintending every detail ever since. That is why Jesus says, that no sparrow can fall to the ground except the Father knows it. He knows every hair on the head of every person that has ever lived. God forms the cells which make babies in their mother's wombs. He knows the story for each of those children before they are ever birthed, and He controls everything that they will ever do. God is in absolute sovereign control. You see, there's no such thing as partial sovereignty. God is in total sovereign control, and he's even in control of famines. Why did he do that? Well, he wanted to test Abram. Now, I don't think that Abram was wrong to go down to Egypt. Moses doesn't make any comments about this here in this chapter. I don't think God was testing Abram to see if he would leave Canaan to go to Egypt. That wasn't the test. 
The test was how would he follow God? How would he obey God? How would he honor God once he got down to Egypt? It was, it was wise to go to Egypt because they had plenty of water there, and therefore they could have crops and they could survive. But as we already read in the story, Abram is very fearful because he has a good-looking wife. Now, people lived longer then, so they were really beautiful even up into these periods of life. Now, if you're a little older today, don't misunderstand me. You can be very, very pretty back into these older ages, but back in that day, you seem to have like this youthful appearance even into older ages than we do now. So don't get mad at me, okay? Just trying to explain it. She was good looking. And he wasn't exactly telling her to outright lie. Or at least he justified it that way in his mind. Because she was his half-sister. And I know you might be saying, ooh, but they did that stuff back then. Apparently the family trees of, of humanity were not quite corrupted enough where it kind of created like mutants. So Sarai and, and Abram kind of just did what everybody else did. She was his half-sister. So he kind of tells her to tell a half-truth, if you will. But it came from a bad place because he was fearful. And I think this is the test. The test is, will you do what is right when I call you to do it? And perhaps to be even a little bit more full about this, Will you do what is right in the context of all the promises that I've made you? You see, when it really comes down to it, I think there's all kinds of idols that we crave. Now, again, I say this from time to time just so you understand me. Most of you, if we were to like, take like, a, a tour of each other's homes and we went into your family room, there wouldn't be a totem pole there, right? Like you wouldn't have like the god of the sun and the god of the lake and the god of the river and the god of the grasshopper. I mean, if nothing else, that would be really, really weird, Right? But you, you don't worship idols like that anymore here. Like, we're a little more sophisticated than that. Our idols are perhaps sometimes a little bit more invisible, though the effects of that idolatry are very visible. We worship money and sex, relationships, and a host of other things. We can take really anything that's good and given to us by God, and we can twist it into something ultimate. But every once in a while... God exposes the flimsiness of all those idols. And perhaps one of the greatest idols that we have and perhaps one of the most elusive ones to get our minds wrapped around is the idol of equilibrium, comfort, status quo. We like things to just be kind of okay. My wife's family, the women, have this thing from time to time especially if they stare up at a ceiling and paint a ceiling or if they bump their head or fall, that they get vertigo. This is pretty common in Whitney's family. And Whitney's actually gone through this. I think it was right after Sam was born. And it's horrible. Have any of you ever had vertigo? A few of you have? I have never had that, but, but my wife described it as just the most awful feeling in the world. And you just can't even function. And nobody can see it like you don't have a broken bone. There, there's no blood. There's no wounds. It's just inside your head, but it's debilitating. And metaphorically speaking, I think that's what God does to us from time to time. He, he knocks us off our equilibrium. He, he gives us a bit of vertigo to test what we trust in. That's what he did for Abram. He called him out of everything that he knew, and then pretty quickly, he brings famine to this promised land. So Abram now is tested. Will you Will you really trust me? Will you do the things I want you to do? 
But Abram craves control. He craves equilibrium. And so what he does is he sins. And not only that, he compels his wife and half-sister to sin. We've already read the effects. It almost ended in total disaster. God brought plagues upon Pharaoh's house, and Pharaoh knew that as a superstitious man that something was going on, and it was revealed to him that this woman was actually Abram's wife. And Pharaoh, in great strength, could have wiped Abram's family entirely out. Customarily speaking, he would have had the right to do that, and by and large, by the sake of retribution, you think he would have done that. Hey, I can get rid of this plague just by killing this guy. I'll wipe them all out. So Abram, in an effort to self-preserve, puts his wife in a precarious position, and therefore his own posterity in a precarious position. And you might think that, that by his own actions, when he tries to take control, that maybe all of God's plans would be thwarted. I mean, God intended to bring the promises through Abram's family, but if Abram's family is all dead because Abram made a terrible mistake, then the plan's over. But God even superintends the fallout of Abram's sin. As a little parenthetical thought, God often does that for us, right? God tends not to treat us according to our sins. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't punish sin or that God does not discipline His children. He clearly does. But if God disciplined us to the degree that we deserve, none of us would be sitting here today because we would be vapor. That's not the way God works. And there's mercy often even in the punishment, that it does not go to the severe extent that God could and probably should take it. Parenthetical thought ended. The primary thing that we need to take out of this is that God was testing Abram. Why? Well, because God, Yahweh, wanted to see what Abram really worshipped. If this is pre-converted Abram, this just goes to show that Abram didn't quite get it yet. There was, this, there was this kind of affection for God, maybe. Or maybe he thought that if he just followed this Yahweh, that Yahweh would give him things he wanted. I mean, it sounds great to have a great nation born out of your loins. It sounds great to get your own country. It sounds great to be kind of revered throughout the globe. That sounds pretty good. But what about when those promises seem to go dark a bit? What about whenever there seems to be obstacles to those promises coming about? Well, Abram does what we do. He began to intervene on his own and put his own hands on the proverbial steering wheel and say, I'll drive for a while. And everything went really, really bad. What God was showing Abram here is that Abram had to totally trust him even when things were dark, when the promises went dim. And I think we live there all the time. I see this in my own heart. I hate to not be in control of things. I love to control everything. I love to control my family. I love to control my job. I love to control everything. I I crave that because I want things to go my way. But in my family and in my job and in every other facet of my life, God continuously 
knocks the props out from under me and gives me sort of a spiritual vertigo to make me understand that I can't control things. Now, I must be responsible. I must act upon what I know and and do what I should do. But frankly, I'm not really in control. How does this show up in your life? How might this show up at work? Well, it's easy to cut corners. It's easy to justify deceit to cover yourself. It's easy to not call people out when they are deceitful or don't practice integrity. It's interesting just very basically how easy it is to lie. For Abram, it was pretty easy. In fact, we will find that Abram does the same thing again later. And then his son Isaac does it. And then his son Jacob lies all the time. It kind of got handed down, tragically speaking. Even all the way to us, right? We know that one of the Ten Commandments is not to lie. But I suspect that for most of us, it wasn't that long ago that we told some kind of lie. We do that to cover ourselves. We do that to self-preserve. And we justify it. Why? Because we crave equilibrium and we don't want people to upset our apple cart. How does this show up in your marriage? Sometimes out of fear, our wives will try to control things. Now that may often be because the father and husband is not leading like he should, and so there's a vacuum of leadership, and so wife-mother rushes in and out of fear trying to control things and and asserts her own self-control. Sometimes out of a desire to be a domineering person, a a husband will, will control his wife or his children to the point that it turns into this tragic reality that he just is the king of the universe to them. It happens in our finances. What do we do when God takes some of the funds away? I think often for those of us who live in the West, all of us here today, that's where God tends to touch us pretty often. He puts His finger on the money. And perhaps it's not even so much that we desire to be rich, but we just desire everything to be okay. But every once in a while, God touches the money, and He wants us to see whether we're trusting Him as the source of everything that we need or we're trusting in our power to provide it. We do this with our children. We manipulate their lives. We turn them into little idols to make ourselves feel better about us. We control them. We manipulate them. We do this in our relationships all the time. Are you the kind of person that gives yourself freely to those who need you? Or are you constantly maneuvering to see what people can be for you? Are you making much of Jesus in your relationships or are you maneuvering people so they will make much of you? And we could talk about this for the rest of the day. But why do we do this? Well, again, we try to self-preserve. We try to come back to equilibrium. But if you belong to God, He won't let you do that. He is relentless, not only in keeping promises, but in coming after you so that you will Ultimately, trust in His promises and not in yourself. Our idolatry is subtle, but it must be exposed 
and it must be dealt with. But there is a better way. And we're going to see that throughout the rest of Abram's story. And in fact, he already proves it here to Abram. Because rather than letting Abram fall flat on his face or perhaps be killed, which justifiably Pharaoh could have done, he takes Abram away. And seemingly, because Moses doesn't really make much comment about this, he's even richer when he left than when he went in. Do you realize God does that sometimes as well? Sometimes whenever you deserve punishment, he blesses instead. And you're, and you're supposed to just think to yourself, why does God do that? But that should lead you to repentance and transformation. That's what he did for Abram. You see, God was faithful always. He was faithful at the beginning of the chapter when he called Abram to himself and gave him all these promises. And he was faithful after Abram failed the test. And if you're his child, he will be that to you always. He'll always be faithful to you. You're going to fail some of the tests he puts you through. Now, increasingly over time, you should pass more of those tests. Although, frankly, sometimes the tests get more acute and harder. But our lives are kind of like Abram's. There's ebb flow to them. Sometimes there's great periods of faithfulness, and sometimes there's not. Sometimes we fail, and sometimes we succeed. And yet, really, what that does is it proves it's not about us, but it's about a God who always keeps His promises. So how has God promised us, or what has God promised us? It's really the same promise He gave to Abram. One of my favorite songs from one of my favorite artists is Step by Step by Rich Mullins. He says, Sometimes I think of Abraham, how one star he saw had been lit for me. He was a stranger in this land, and I am that no less than he. And on this road to righteousness, sometimes the climb can be so steep. I may falter in my steps, but never beyond your reach. O God, you are my God, and I will ever praise you. O God, you are my God, and I will ever praise you. I will seek you in the morning, and I will learn to walk in your ways. And step by step, you'll lead me, and I will follow you all of my days. Abraham learned through promise that this God was worth following. And Abraham learned through his failures that this God was worth following. That's what the test was to reveal. So God, the God of Abraham, is our God. He has given us great and precious promises, the greatest, of course, of which is that He has given us Jesus, the seed which would come through barren women to bless the whole world, the God who promises us eternal life and fellowship and sonship. He never, ever breaks His promises. But the same God of Abraham, our God today, will put us through times of testing and trial to reveal what is down inside of us. So how has God kept His promises to you? How has God or how is God testing you today? Abram was to make his decisions out of the context of God's promises. He feared for his life, but God had already promised him back in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, that he'd make a nation from him. How would God do that if Abraham was dead? But Abraham got so scared that he forgot the promises and he tried to take control. So how do you make it through your testing? You rehearse the promises to yourself again 
and again and again and again. And what do you do when you find yourself having failed? You remind yourself of the promises again and again and again. So I call you to that today. If you are His child, rest in His promises. If you are His child, endure the testing by trusting in His promises. If you have fallen and failed, endure and repent by resting in His promises. And if you are considering following this God of Abraham, following the God that we proclaim to you today, I promise you that His promises are unmatched. This life will not always be easy, but He will always carry you because our God always keeps His promises.